So we're going to be back in Revelation chapter 16. We got to the end of things last week and we started rushing and I thought we might recap and I thought, you know, I'm not really good at recapping things. Normally when I recap, I spend 30 or 40 minutes recapping and then have to rush on the next thing. So I thought we'll just spend our time recapping tonight and giving more detail to the sixth and seventh bowls in Revelation chapter 16. So we'll hope to study chapter 17 together next week. And then um, I hope you know, but if you don't, on the 17th, uh, we'll gather uh, not here, but we'll all be together at 530 in the sanctuary for our M3 celebration. And then that will end all the regular grow groups for the year. And so there will be from May 24th through August the 2nd, I believe, um, just a family Bible study with me on Wednesday nights. And uh, I, might, I might have JB and John fill in from time to time, but we will finish our Revelation study first, and then whatever remaining weeks we have in the summer, we'll dive into something else. But tonight I want us to look at Revelation 16, and let's read together the end of this chapter beginning in verse 12, and then we'll walk back through. John writes, The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw, coming out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are demonic spirits performing signs, who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and the loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake, such as there has never been since man was on the earth. So great was the earthquake. The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found. And great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hail, because the plague was so severe. The first five bold judgments will bring the world to a point of desperation. Those who dwell on the earth, remember that's John's way of talking about the unbelieving world, those who dwell on the earth are plagued by harmful and painful sores. That's the first bowl. Uh, they're overcome with the stench of death as the sea has turned to blood and everything in it has died. That's the second bowl. They're unable to quench their thirst because the fresh water is now foul with blood. That's the third bowl. And they're burned by the scorching fire of the sun. That's the fourth bowl. And they are gnawing their tongues in the despair of darkness, all while they curse the God of heaven for the plagues they are enduring and refuse to repent of their deeds. That's bowl number five. The refusal to repent of their deeds sets the stage 
for the sixth bowl judgment. John tells us that the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. The Euphrates is the longest river in Western Asia. It's 1,740 miles long. It rises in Turkey, flows across Syria, southwest through Iraq. In ancient times, the Euphrates was the natural barrier which held back the pagan hordes, those who were the opponents of ancient Rome. In fact, we know that the Euphrates is one of the great boundaries of that region known as Mesopotamia, the center of the earth at the beginning of the world. Robert Mounts writes that the Euphrates marked the eastern boundary of the land given by covenant to Abraham and his seed in Genesis 15 and 18. It also separated the Roman Empire on the east from the much-feared Parthians whose expert cavalry bowmen had conquered the entire territory from the Euphrates to the Indus River. We have seen that the river Euphrates in the Old Testament is the boundary of the promised land, George Ladd writes, beyond which were the hordes of heathen peoples waiting for the opportunity to invade the people of God. In chapter 9, verses 13 to 21, John wrote about the sixth trumpet. There he said that he heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God, saying to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, Release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. When those angels were released, so was the authority to kill a third of mankind, accomplished through 200 million mounted troops. Similarly, the sixth bowl opens the way to destruction. But this time, it is a destruction that will be complete and unrestrained as God sets the stage for the pagan hordes to align for a final time with the kings of the whole world in service to the dragon for one final battle on the great day of God the Almighty, a battle that will consume them and leave them waiting for the second resurrection the one that leads to death. John says that this amassing of an army for battle comes as a response to the drying up of the Euphrates. Isaiah 44 and verse 27 reminds us that God is able to say to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers, and it happens. In fact, it happened two significant times in Israel's history. In Exodus chapter 14, verses 21 to 22, we read about the parting of the Red Sea where Moses says that the Lord drove back the sea by a strong east wind all night and made the sea dry land and the waters were divided and the people of Israel went into the midst of the sea on dry ground and the waters being a wall to them on their right hand and on their left. And in Joshua 3, verses 14 and 7 to 17, we read about the drying up of the Jordan River and how the people of God were able to pass over into the land of promise. There, Joshua tells us that as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped into the brink of the water, the waters coming down from above stood and rose up in a heap very far away so that all Israel passed over from Jericho on dry ground. So God parted the waters of the Red Sea for his people to escape the attack of the Egyptians. And he dried up the Jordan River at flood stage to allow his people to enter the promised land. 
One more time, at the end of days, God will dry up the waters. This time, the waters of the Euphrates. But it will not be for the passage of his people, but for the assembly of his enemies. Grant Osborne writes that the drying up is the antithesis of the drying of the Red Sea, as the saints are attacked rather than delivered. The drying up of the river Euphrates will prepare the way for the kings from the east. So we have to ask the question, who are these kings? Some would say that these are literally kings from Asia. We don't have a number, but a number of kings who rule or are government officials in eastern countries or nations, and that they will assemble with other world leaders in order to make war on the Lamb of God and the saints of God. And there are others who put this back in historical terms and say that what John is talking about is a historical event, the actual invasion of the Roman Empire by the Parthians. Some would see this as based on that Parthian invasion, but, but looking forward to the idea of Asian rulers who will oppose the rulers of the West. And then some see that there is here a figurative image, something that is describing the sorts of struggles that occur throughout human history before the coming of the Lord Jesus. Austin Fairer summarizes a view I I think is interesting, maybe even compelling. He says that what John is symbolizing is nothing more nor less than a coming of all governments into line with the empire in making war upon the saints. St. John, he writes, gives a hint of his meaning by forgetting the Orient, the East, and the fords of the Euphrates in chapter 16 and verse 14, and mustering the kings of all the inhabited world. Grant Osborne expounds on this idea, and he says, it is unlikely that this description of the Euphrates drying up means a literal drying up of the Euphrates River at the end of human history because throughout the book of Revelation, water is used figuratively. And in the modern world, the Euphrates would no longer have the kind of strategic place that it did in the ancient world. He writes also, Isaiah and Jeremiah saw the drying up of the Red Sea as a symbol, and it is likely that John has done the same thing here. So is it a literal drying up of the Euphrates, or is, it, is this a symbol? Is it figurative? I think probably we're to see it as figurative. We talked about that some last week. We have at several points made comment on the reality of a false and unholy trinity consisting of a father figure who is the dragon. Remember that the dragon we were introduced to in chapter 12 is the ancient serpent, the devil, Satan himself. And the second person of this false trinity is the beast of the sea. And we have seen that he is not only called the beast of the sea, he is also called the beast of the abyss or the antichrist or the man of lawlessness. Those are all ways of talking about the same being. And the third person of this false and unholy trinity is the beast of the earth that we were introduced to in the second half of chapter 13. He is also introduced to us in chapter 16 as the false prophet. We've known for some time that there is this false trinity at work, but now we see it clearly in chapter 16. John writes that he saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon, 
Out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs. At the outset of the apocalypse in chapter 1, verses 12 to 16, John told us about the Lord Jesus. He said that the Lord Jesus is the one who is in the midst of the lampstands, that is, in the midst of the churches, and that he told us that there, that out of his mouth, chapter 1, verse 16, out of his mouth would come a sharp two-edged sword. In chapter 2, in verse 12, to the church at Pergamum, Jesus revealed himself as him who has the sharp two-edged sword. And to the church at Pergamum, in chapter 2, in verse 16, he said that if the church would not repent, he would make war against them with the sword out of his mouth. In chapter 19 and verse 15, John will tell us that the purpose of this sword is to strike down the nations. So from the mouth of the Lord Jesus comes a sharp two-edged sword. And we know from Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 that that sword is actually his word. It's the word of God, the word of the Lord, a word that can either correct or condemn The sharp sword of Jesus' speech is contrasted then to the delusional deceptions of the false trinity. What comes out of Jesus' mouth is truth. What comes out of the mouth of the false trinity is lie. The members of the false trinity have coming out of their mouths unclean spirits like frogs, which John tells us are demonic spirits. Robert Mounts writes, The evil spirits come out of the mouths of the unholy triumvirate, suggesting the persuasive and deceptive propaganda that in the last days will lead people to an unconditional commitment to the cause of evil. These historically conditioned symbols reveal end-time truth that far transcends the limitations of their origins. In time, the Roman Empire would crumble... But beyond all temporary manifestations of secular power, the entire structure of human opposition to the kingdom of God will come crashing down in defeat. In the mind of the apocalypse, apocalyptist John, this will happen not by the gradual turning of people to the truth, but by the dramatic and sudden return of the warrior Christ. People duped by the subtle propaganda of secularism have cut themselves off from the source of truth and must bear the inevitable consequences. In other words, what Robert Mounts is saying is this, that there is in our world a kingdom, a system of government, a power force that is operating behind the scenes. You and I, we know that there are pagan nations. We know that there are, there are emperors and there are despots and there are tyrants and there are all sorts of authoritarian rulers who lead nations in ways that are demonic and unholy and false. They set up before people, before the peoples of earth, all sorts of gods to worship. They even set up the god of the state, worship the government itself. And sometimes we look at these things and we say, this is demonic, this is satanic. How could this possibly be just in the world? And we are right to say it is demonic or it is satanic, for indeed the system behind it is the system of Satan himself. After all the kingdoms, plural, of this world pass away, there is still a kingdom of this world led by the dragon, by Satan. 
and it rears its head in so many earthly kingdoms that rise and fall. And what Robert Mounts is saying is that one day that kingdom will have a last stand. That the kingdom of this world that one day will be consumed and conquered by the Lord Jesus himself, that this kingdom of this world will have a last stand at the end of days. That when that happens, it will be at the great day of God the Almighty, John says, And all the peoples of earth, all the leaders of the world will assemble to make war on God and on his people, and they will be condemned. John says that out of the mouths of the dragon and the false prophet and the beast come these unclean spirits that are like frogs. It recalls the second Egyptian plague in Exodus chapter 8, verses 1 to 15. The Lord told Moses, go and tell Pharaoh to let my people go. If he doesn't do it, bring down a plague of frogs upon the whole land. But of course, Pharaoh wouldn't do it. And there was a plague of frogs brought down upon the whole land. You remember that exquisite description in Exodus 8? It says that the frogs covered the land. They were so prevalent that they could not even make bread without finding frogs in their flower bowl. Do you remember that? It says in the kneading bowl, there were the frogs. They were everywhere. Can you imagine? And then it says when they finally pleaded for mercy, Moses was to call down the ending of this plague. And so it did, and God relented and said, there'll be now frogs everywhere. Uh, Frogs won't be anywhere except in the river itself. And it says that they went around and they... They scooped up, they shoveled up all of the frogs and piled them up into heaps. And the scripture says there was such a stench in the land. Frogs are unclean in the eyes of the law. Leviticus 11, 10 to 11 tells us that. So it's a fitting illustration for the unclean demonic spirits sent into the world by the false and unholy trinity to do their bidding. But notice what John says about these unclean spirits, these frog-like demons. He says that they are performing signs that go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for battle. Performing signs. Grant Osborne writes that behind the political opposition and religious blasphemy of both the Roman Empire of John's day and the Beast Empire at the end of history are demonic forces leading the pagans into worshiping the wrong gods. They accomplish this by doing signs. John has pointed to these demon-driven signs before. In describing the works of the beast of the earth in chapter 13, verses 13 to 15, John wrote, It performs great signs, even making fire come down from the heaven to earth in front of people, and by it, and by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on earth, telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. That same power is at work in these demonic spirits sent out into the world by the unholy false trinity 
in order to bring about a worldwide coalition that will assemble for battle on the great day of God the Almighty. George Eldon Ladd writes, In the sixth trumpet, a terrible demonic plague came from the east to afflict men, bringing death to a third of mankind. Here the motif is different. The evil spirits do not afflict men, but inspire them to give their support to the dragon and the beast and the false prophet. John means to say that there is no mere military or political movement, but the manifestation of end of day history of an age-long struggle between God and Satan. The word translated foul is the word frequently used in the Gospels, which refers to demons as unclean spirits. They are said to be like frogs, again, an analogy to the plague in Egypt. John then inserts a warning from Jesus himself. He says in verse 15, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Those words come without warning. I mean, here we were, minding our own business, reading about these bold judgments being poured out upon the earth. We would expect here to see the description of this great end-of-day battles. John has just told us that all the nations of the earth, the kings from the east and the kings of the world, are going to be united through the powerful, wonder-working signs of these demonic spirits sent out by an unholy trinity to make war against God and the people of God. We would expect here a description of that war, would we not? But instead, what we get is a, a little sermon. Just a brief word from Jesus himself. It comes suddenly, without warning, much in the way Jesus will come. Jesus told the church at Sardis in chapter 3 and verse 3, that if you will not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will know what hour I will, and you will not know what hour I will come against you. There the swiftness and suddenness of his coming was shown to be a judgment against the church that was all but dead. Remember Jesus told the church at Sardis, you're like a whitewashed tomb. You, you think you're alive, but you've dead men's bones inside of you. He was predicting a warning, a judgment against the church all but dead and a people who would reject his warning and give up on eternal life. But of course, the quickness of our Lord's coming is not just a sign of his judgment against the wicked, it is also a sign of his justice for the righteous. That's why Jesus used this sort of imagery in the Olivet Discourse as he drew the lines of distinction between the one who will be taken and the one who will be left. In Matthew 24, verses 42 to 44, he told his disciples, Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The Apostle Paul carried this teaching forward when he wrote to the church at Thessalonica in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, 
Remember that that was a church that had great misunderstanding about the return of the Lord. All of 1 Thessalonians it hinges on a, a writing of a wrong understanding. They have misinterpreted the message of Jesus' return. They've wondered if perhaps the resurrection has already occurred. And so Jesus, he, is, he has been misunderstood and Paul has to clear this up. So he writes to a church that he helped to found and he says, I want you to know about the coming of the Lord. I don't want you to be ignorant. Remember he told them that that they didn't have to worry about being caught off guard, about wondering if it had already happened. For it would be marked by certain signs. And then Paul wrote in 1 Thessalonians 5 verses 2 to 4, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While pain, while people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman and they will not escape. But then he says this, You are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. Peter did the same thing carrying this teaching of Jesus forward. In 2 Peter chapter 3, in verse 10, Peter wrote that the day of the Lord will come like a thief and then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Just make a note there that the prophets, both in the Old Testament and the New, when they look to the end of days, the coming of the Lord Jesus, they expected not only a sifting of the hearts and souls of men, but they also expected the passing away of this earth and the coming of a new earth. For indeed, God makes all things new. The Lord Jesus wants his people to be prepared That's what it means to stay awake. When he says, I'm coming like a thief, blessed is the one who stays awake. It means that we should be watchful. We should be looking. We should remain spiritually adept. There's a contrast being made here. What Jesus longs for his people to experience is the kind of rest that lasts for eternity. The kind of rest that is found in him. The kind of rest that comes for not just the body, but for the soul. And in order for us to experience the kind of rest that lasts for eternity in Jesus Christ, here we must be watchful, awake, alert. And the contrast is made to the God of this world, the devil, who longs that here we should be at rest, asleep, without warning, without concern, without watchfulness, knowing that it will lead to our destruction so that in eternity we never have rest for our souls. The world sings to us with a siren song of Satan. There are all sorts of sounds that lull us into a spiritual stupor. You've ever been in that place where you just could hardly keep your eyes open? Some of you, that's about 9 o'clock every Sunday morning. (laughs) No, seriously, I don't ever see people sleep in worship. People confess. They love to come up and say, I'm sorry, preacher. And I'm like, I really don't see or hear that, so just keep it to yourself. It's all good. 
But there are those moments in our lives when we can just barely stay awake. And Jesus says there are those moments in our lives when spiritually we can just barely stay awake. The God of this world, the unholy false trinity, sends out into the world its siren songs, these demonic spirits that are sent to convey uh, lure and enticement and to draw people to this God so that they might align themselves against the Lord God, against him and his people on the day of his return. And Jesus says to those who love him, Don't you get caught up in that mess. Don't you listen to that song. Don't you be undone by that lulling sound. Be watchful. Stay awake. Learn. Be like the sons of Issachar and learn to discern the times in which you live. He says not only are we to stay awake, but he says that the one who is blessed is one who keeps his garments on that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Remember at many points Jesus has reminded us about the importance of being clothed. He talked about this in his address in chapter 3 to the church at Laodicea. He said, I counsel you, you who are lukewarm, you who think you're rich but you're not, you who think you have everything put together but you don't, He said, I counsel you to do three things. You remember what he said? I want you to buy gold refined in the fire. He said, I want you to buy salve for your eyes. And he said, I want you to buy robes, white robes, that you might be covered. Remember that that white robe, it's a symbol of the righteousness of the Lord Jesus. It's a symbol of our standing in him. When Jesus says, I want you to buy this white robe, he's saying, I want you by faith, I want you by faith to put it on. I want you to trust in my sufficiency. I want you to be clothed in my righteousness. We remember that in chapter 6. In chapter 6, in the breaking of the fifth seal, we read about how beneath the altar of God, the saints, the martyrs were crying out, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long until you avenge our blood upon those who dwell on the earth? And the word came to them, did it not? Be clothed in white robes and rest a little longer until your number is complete. Jesus said to his people there, listen, the thing that actually satisfies the soul, the thing that causes you to be at rest, the thing that allows you to have a measure of comfort when your life has been taken is that you are hidden in me. And so here we come to this moment when Jesus breaks into the story of the end of days and he says to his people, stay awake, be alert, be watchful, keep your clothes on. He's not talking about their physical condition. He's talking about their spiritual condition. And he's not saying you could lose your salvation. He's saying you've got to live like you're saved. You've got to embrace your righteousness that comes from me. You don't want, listen, he doesn't want us to act like we're righteous when we gather with his people and live like we're not the rest of the week. That's what it means to be caught. 
When he says in chapter 16 and verse 15 that he would be keep your garment on that you may not be uh, caught naked or be seen exposed, he's saying, listen, you don't want to be found out for not actually belonging to me. You don't want to have walked around saying, I belong to you, Jesus. I'm covered in your righteousness. I trust in your grace. And then actually be exposed as one who hasn't really trusted in Christ. So trust me. Live for me. Practice holiness. Jesus wants us to live in such a way that we keep our garments on and we keep our garments white. He wants us to pursue righteousness in this life and not be caught without covering, exposed to the world as unbelieving and deserving of judgment. As the demonic frog-like spirits call the kings of the east to come across the dried-up Euphrates and align with the kings of the world for battle on the day of God the Almighty, John tells us they assembled at a place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Now we're getting somewhere. You've heard about the Battle of Armageddon. But maybe you haven't realized this is the only place in the Revelation that this is described, or that this word is used, we should say. And as we've had to do so often in our study of this Revelation, we have to put pieces of the puzzle together. John John doesn't give it to us in ABC order. He doesn't like to just tell us, one, two, three, here you go, build this kit on your own. Instead, John paints a little bit of the picture. He sketches an outline over here, and then he goes and does something else, and he comes back to it later. It's sort of like some of us doing our household chores. Is that just me? I go to vacuum, and when I realize that as I'm vacuuming, I say, you know, that really needs to be put up. And so I go to put that up in the closet. And I say, that closet needs to be cleaned out. And so I begin to clean out that closet. And I realize that that box needs to be in a different place. And so I leave that behind, go put this box in the shed. And then I realize that the shed needs to be cleaned out. And while I'm pulling things out of the shed, I realize that, right? That's a lot of us. So many things left undone. You'll know that if I ever start doing projects around here usually because I leave a trail of coffee cups in various places. So we kind of have to put pieces back together. John leaves us a sprinkling, crumbs, little descriptions here and there for us to learn the deep things of God and figure out how these things go together. So here's what I want to say at this point. We will return to the scene of the Battle of Armageddon in fuller and more complete detail when we come to chapter 19, verses 11 to 21. That's where the battle actually takes place. There we will argue that this battle of Armageddon takes place after the catching up of the people of God and the coming of the Lord Jesus a final time to earth, but before the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. Some people would argue that this description in chapter 16, the description in chapter 19, and the description in chapter 20 are actually recapitulations of the same thing, ways of talking about the same thing. I don't think that's the case. I think what John describes here in chapter 16 is the introduction of the Battle of Armageddon, that in chapter 19 we see that battle actually fought, 
And of course, you remember, there is no real fight, right? They assemble, everybody gets ready to make war, and then there's complete destruction. No real battle takes place. After that battle, you remember that all those who have assembled with the unholy trinity, the dragon, the beast of the, of the sea, and the beast of the earth, all the people of earth, all the unbelieving world that has assembled with them, they are killed and they go down to death and await their judgment. They will be a part of a second resurrection, the resurrection that leads to death. They will be raised in that second resurrection. And in chapter 20, we will see that they will appear before the great white throne and be judged according to their works. And because they do not have their names written in the Lamb's book of life, and because their works are evil, they will be cast into the lake of fire. Ahead of them in the lake of fire will have already been thrown the beast of the sea and the beast of the earth, who is also called the false prophet. They will go there after the Battle of Armageddon. But after the Battle of Armageddon, the leader of the unholy trinity, Satan himself, he is not thrown immediately into the lake of fire. Where does he go? Anybody? He gets locked up, remember? He gets locked up in the abyss. And he is locked up in the abyss for the millennial reign, for the thousand years. So here's what we have. The catching up of the Lord's church at the end of human history the coming of the Lord Jesus, the battle of Armageddon, the beast of the earth and the beast of the sea are thrown into the lake of fire. The unbelieving world is condemned to death in the battle of Armageddon and they await a second resurrection and Satan himself is locked up into the, into the abyss for a thousand years the Lord Jesus reigns for a thousand years upon the earth as a foretaste, a way, of, a way of showing his power and his control and his authority. And even at that time, we will see that there will be some who did not assemble in the battle of Armageddon, who have not gone against him yet fully and completely. And yet even the thousand years will not be enough to turn their hearts to the right. Because as soon as Satan is released, he will draw the remaining unbelieving world to himself. They will assemble once again for battle, only they will be destroyed and condemned. There will be a great white throne judgment in which all those whose names are not written in the Lamb's book of life are condemned by the works of their lives. They are thrown into the lake of fire where hell and death are thrown as well. And the new heaven and the new earth will have passed away and a new heaven and a new earth will come together where God will reign with his people. All of that is to come. And what John is doing here is he's just giving us the thumbnail version, right? You know on your computer when you've got 5,000 pictures, like I've got of Jack right now, I've got 5,000 pictures of Jack. Everybody says, you got a picture? Yeah, I got a picture, one or just one or two. Um, and on your computer, when you see all the files, you don't see all the detail. You see the little thumbnail, right? That's what John does in chapter 16. He gives us just the little thumbnail. Here's just a little bit of the image. And when you click into it, when you read chapter 17, 18, 19, and 20, you get the full detail. Here's what we should say at this point. The word Armageddon is difficult for us to understand. Because what it means is Har Megiddo or Mount Megiddo, the mountain of Megiddo. 
And the problem is that Megiddo was not a mountain geographically. Uh, when we look at it topographically, it's a plain between the Sea of Galilee and the Mediterranean, a part of the Valley of Jezebel. It was a famous battleground, George Eldon Ladd reminds us, in the history of Israel. At Megiddo, Barak and Deborah overthrew the Canaanite Jabin. We read about that in Judges chapter 5. And Ahaziah was slain by Jehu, 2 Kings chapter 23, or 2 Chronicles chapter 35. He then says, whatever the derivation of this name, it is clear that John means by Armageddon the place of final struggle between the powers of evil and the kingdom of God. J. Scott Duvall, who I've not told you much about, but it's a, he has a good book called Teaching the Text. It's a commentary series, and he writes the Revelation commentary. He gives a good summary here, and he says that the city of Megiddo was not a mountain but was a famous site of many significant battles in Israel's history when God's people were attacked by pagan nations. As a result, it became a symbol of the epic eschatological battle between God and the forces of evil. While some see human armies gathering in the future at this exact location in northern Palestine to fight against God's people, a symbolic interpretation seems more likely since geographical names in Revelation, such as Babylon, often represent larger realities. In either case, this very real epic battle is anticlimactic since Christ conquers merely by his appearance. The battle and its outcome are reported, as I said, in chapter 19, verses 11 to 21. I'll say one more thing here. I've told you so much about um, Eugene Peterson. We've referenced several of his books, and I've read several quotations. But one of the things that I love to do is, is to read the people that they're reading. So when I quote someone, I want to see who, are the, who do they read? Who, who's, who are they referencing? And one of the people that Eugene Peterson references is a guy named Austin Ferrer. It's been a challenge over the last couple of weeks as I've been reading him a little bit and a little, little bit here and there. But here's a quotation from Ferrer. He says that Mount Megiddo stands in John's mind as a place where lying prophecy and its dupes Go to meet their doom, where kings and their armies are misled to their destruction, and where all the tribes of the earth mourn to see him in power, whom in weakness they have pierced. That's the Lord Jesus. For there the stars in their courses fight against princes, and the floods of destruction sweep them away. What Ferrer points to is this reality that John tells us about. That there will be at the end of human history, after the coming of the Lord Jesus, a final time, a great battle in which all the people of the earth, those who are unbelieving, are aligned with the dragon and the two beasts. And they fight under his banner against God and his people but there will be no real fight at all. For the mere presence of the pierced one, the Lord Jesus, will be sufficient to destroy them. 
That's why John is able to tell us in chapter 16 and verse 17 that it is done. He says there that the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake. The great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell and God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away and no mountains were to be found and great hailstones, about 100 pounds each, fell from heaven on people and they cursed God for the plague of the hail because the plague was so severe. What we will see in the next few weeks is that chapter 17 and 18 are a zoomed-in version of this seventh bowl. What John is describing here is the completeness of God's judgment and wrath. It is done. That's God is speaking there, and God is saying there's nothing else to come. There's no more judgment. There's, there's no more pain. There's no more turmoil. There's no more trouble. It's done. I've, I have affected justice. I have caused there to be an end to all the opposition to me. That's why when they show up for the battle of Armageddon, there's no battle because it's done. Here in this moment, John wants us to understand that the full undiluted wrath of God poured out upon the unbelieving world causes complete destruction. The earth is breaking away. It's shattering under the weight of God's wrath. He says that God remembered Babylon the great. It's, that's the way of saying that God hasn't forgotten those who oppose him and those who oppose his people. Sometimes we feel like that. Sometimes we think, will God ever bring justice to the world? Will God ever affect righteousness? Will God be just in pouring out wrath upon those who oppose him? We see wickedness in all sorts of forms. Some of it's really evident. Some of it's the kind of thing we see in, on our television screen or we read in the history books as we think about tyrants and despots, these wicked men who have ruled the earth. And some of the kind of wicked injustice of our world is the sort of thing we see when we hear of the abuse of a child. Or the abuse of the elderly. Or we see a mom and pop who've put their life into the running of a business only for it to be robbed and then to lose their life savings. The kind of injustice we see is in our everyday lives, the kind of thing when when some wicked robocall shows up on your phone in an effort to take your life savings and you press one wrong button or say one wrong word and it's gone. And you wonder, when will God deal with stuff like this? God, when are you going to show up in my life? When are you going to come to bring down wrath upon this sort of evil? He remembers Babylon the Great. He doesn't forget any moment of injustice, any moment of wickedness, any moment of rebellion against him. 
or any act of injustice against His people, God takes it all in. And at the end of days, He remembers Babylon, the system of opposition to Him. Remember, John uses Babylon as a, as a symbol of all the opposition, all of the rebellion against God throughout the world, both in time and in space. It's not just Babylon, that ancient city. It's not just Rome that she would have represented to John's first readers. Babylon's the way of talking about the kingdom of this world, all those who oppose God and the Lamb. And John says, God remembers her and forces her to drink the cup of the fury of his wrath. In chapter 17, we will see John tell us that Babylon is a harlot. She's made herself drunk on the blood of the saints of God. And John will show us how she is in contrast to the bride of Christ. He'll show us that Babylon is a harlot who rides a scarlet beast and he'll remind us of Jesus' bride and the wonder of his conquering on a white horse. And we will see the fate, the the end of these two realities as Babylon is destroyed and those who dwell in her with, with her and as the bride of the Lord Jesus Christ is welcomed to feast at his table, a foretaste of eternal salvation. Father, we pray that you would cause us to know deep in our hearts that there is not one act of injustice in this world that you're unaware of. Sometimes it may seem that way, but when it does, it's because we're seeing the temporary as though it is eternal. We forget to look through the lens of history to see things the way you see things. So help us, God. Help us to see the world moving toward its rightful end. To know that there is a last day coming. To know that when the full and undiluted measure of your wrath has been poured out upon the unbelieving world, we can expect real justice, real vengeance, the recompense of God come against those who have opposed him. Lord, help this to settle in our hearts so that we both trust in you, but also live for you. This is not a call to be arrogant or prideful, to raise ourselves up over those who are in unbelief, but instead to hear the warning of our Savior that we would be watchful, awake, not slumbering, that we would be clothed and not exposed. So help us to pursue holiness. Help us to walk by faith. Help us to trust in the God who one day will speak those words. It is done. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.